I'm Carrie Miller. I hope you've had a year of adventurous and fulfilling reading. Thank you for listening through 2022. And my thanks to producer Kelly Gordon for all of the hard work she puts into making these interviews possible. On this last Big Books and Bold Ideas show of the year, we've done something a bit different. Instead of asking writers about the books they wrote, we're asking writers about a favorite literary character someone else wrote. Is it a character that led a life our writer could imagine themselves living, a kind of path not chosen? Is it a character of such rich dimension and accomplished expression that our writer simply stands back in awe of what its creator did? Is it a character who has made moral choices or confronted tragedy in a way that was important to our writer? Peter Guy published his novel, The Ski Jumpers, this year. He lives and writes in Minneapolis. And I asked him if he had a difficult time narrowing down his favorite character list. Did you, Peter? Oh, did I ever? I have to tell you, it was like a homework assignment. And I spent so much time perusing my bookshelves at home and pulling books off and reacquainting myself with characters, which was incidentally a great pleasure and tons of fun. Uh, and and I ended up with a, a short list. And maybe you'll indulge just just to demonstrate um, my my thinking here. Absolutely. How, how, how I yes. Good. So, so, so I think first it's worth saying there are two sorts of characters that I find myself um, most drawn to m- most often. And they are the, uh, the, the sort of larger than life character, the character who dominates a book, who's probably duplicitous or at least morally ambiguous. And wreaks havoc on the world of his novel. And I don't write very many characters like that. No, but you I don't. Love, That's exactly what I was thinking. This is but interesting. I lo- love reading them. I love that uh, that sort of the the ex- uh, the experience feels like I'm gawking. Like I can't believe what I'm seeing. And I love that as a reader. The sort of character that I uh, write more often and that I'm certainly drawn to in fiction. Um, the other the other quality of character is one of vulnerability. I love when a character uh, when 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 I feel like an intimate connection with them. When I feel like I'm I could possibly know them. Mm-hmm. When I feel like there may be someone that I even um, have have had a past with or had an experience with, but that they're vulnerable. The, the world that they inhabit is one that I can very well imagine myself in. And so I narrowed it down to uh, about five, I guess it's five characters. And the first character that came to mind when I got this assignment were from uh, Jesmyn Ward's uh, Salvage the Bones and Ash and Skeeta in that book. That book continues. I mean, of all the books that I think about, it's, it's one of the ones that returns to me most often. And partly that's true because the writing is just so powerful and the story is so dramatic, but it's also because these characters are so resilient and so brave and so loyal, but they did not make the final, they did not win the award for favorite, Peter's favorite character. <laughs> okay. What was number four? Cause the, so those were number five. What was number yeah. four? 
So there's a, a Minnesota writer by the name of Linda Lagarde. Uh-huh. I'm oh, sure yes. you know who she is. Of course yes. I do. I've read, I just, I put her novel on some of my book trips up into the wilds of Minnesota. I love yeah, her writing. I do too. And I, she's such a sensible, beautiful, laconic writer in her novel in the night of memory mm-hmm. is is just another one and in much the same way for many of the same reasons azure and rain the two siblings in that novel there's so much sorrow in their life but there's also so much joy there's so much devotion that they have for each other and it's funny it's a really funny novel if you let it be um so they also made the short list um Maggie Shipstead wrote a book that came out, I think it was last year, called Great Circle. Uh-huh. And the, the there's a couple of protagonists in that story, but there's a character named Marion Graves, who is a, a woman pilot in the, I think it's the 1950s, who is, uh, uh, it's the story of her life. And then finally, she circumnavigates the globe. And she is another character. She goes through so many transformations and so much um, adventure in her life. She's so multidimensional. I mean, she contains multitudes for sure. Um, And it's constantly surprising me as a reader, a quality that I love and that I kind of can't do without. If a a character is predictable, uh, it's hard for me to stick around. Um, She's also an incredibly brave character. I just, I think... Uh, it's, it's an amazing book and and she's one of the most she probably is second on this list mm, okay. um another of my favorite writers is leif anger i'm mm-hmm. sure you know leif. oh yeah oh yeah uh and i had a hard i i stood with his books for a while trying to figure out which which one of his characters uh sticks with me most but i think it's uh virgil wander from uh, his most well, recent novel uh, yeah and 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 he's the outlier in this group because he's uh, pretty ordinary. Um, mm-hmm. He's his most distinctive quality, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that he's just kind of baffled by life, which is a <laughs> which uh, aligns he and I quite well. <laughs> um, and I and I and I liked walking around with him and just sort of experiencing the world through his baffled uh, and mystified glasses. I also love how good natured that character is he's a philosopher in in a very i don't want to say ordinary way but i but i think in a way that a lot of us would recognize right yes he asks the questions and he isn't precious about it right? he's he's the furthest thing in the world from precious which is, uh, <laughs> he is. uh which is uh, another reason that he is uh so dear to me all of those characters fit the second quality of, yes. of character that i'm most drawn to that vulnerable ordinary character someone you might see anywhere do you feel like the character that that has ended up being most important to you is someone who has transformed the way you see your own life or the world around you or an important relationship in your life what influence has this character had on the way you think there's such a such a difficult question for a writer to answer because the the book that this character is from is my favorite book. It's not close. Uh, I've read this book. Uh, I first read this book in high school. I've read it probably, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 times in the years since. Wow. 
uh, I, I in no way identify with this character. I, I don't recognize myself in them at all. Um, I've never attempted to write a character like this. At least I don't think that I have. Um, and yet, when I think of literary characters and how um, how influential they are on my own writing life, this would be the character that I would put at the top of the list, even though there's no resemblance. And the reason for that is this character in this book taught me so much about what's possible in literature, what's possible in writing. And that the, um, I guess it's almost like a kind of license that I would attempt to write the books that any book, especially the books that I have written, um, is, is a consequence of observing the, and, and having read this character and understanding that anything is possible in a, in a novel. Was it, in the way that you identify with this character, was it inevitable that it would be a male character because you're a guy and that's where the deepest identification is going to happen or not? No, because... I mean, this is also interesting in the list that I came up with. And there were a couple of characters that fit this, the, the, the larger than life quality that I considered. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't actually, I never really considered them, but I at least put them on a list, you know, to look at and to think about. Um, But as I looked at the bookshelves in my house and as I considered favorite characters, uh, most of them were women. Hmm. Uh, women characters or, or, or girl characters. And I thought about that. And I thought about my own writing, the books that I have published, and there are more men than there are women protagonists in them. Mm -hmm. I think that that will change as, as I continue to write. I, I do feel like it's changing. Well, certainly it's, it's changing in the book that I'm writing now where the, the main protagonist is a, is a woman, but I, no, I don't. And it certainly, it didn't feel inevitable. I've always been very comfortable writing women. I've always felt a great kinship and connection to m- my favorite women characters in novels. I think partly that's true because I grew up in a house with three sisters and my grandmother lived with us for most of my childhood. And my mother was, uh, uh, uh not, not a stay at home mother, but, um, certainly played the role of um, keeper of the house. Uh, and, and I grew up, you know, bumping into my sisters and their friends and my grandmother and her friends and my mother and her friends. And so was surrounded by women from a very young age and influenced greatly, I might add, by all of those, all of those women. So no, I don't think it was inevitable. Um, and, and this character, I mean, you hardly think of him as human, much less as a as a man. <laughs> wow, I am intrigued. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to the very last Big Books and Bold Ideas show of, of 20, I was going to say 1922, of 2022 on this New Year's Eve. And we're doing something a little different. We're asking writers about a favorite literary character someone else wrote, an author that they admire wrote, a story that has been indelible to their experiences um, as as writers and as humans. Uh, and, and we're asking them why this character, this particular character, speaks 
so fervently to them. Peter Guy is our guest, and he published his novel, The Ski Jumpers, this year. And he's about to unveil the character that fits that description. So, Peter, who is it? This is so fun. I can hardly believe how fun this <laughs> Isn't is. Isn't it? It is. <laughs> the, the character that and, and and so i've i've spent all this time equivocating and talking about other characters but in point of fact this is the character that i remember most from my reading life and that i i look at and am reminded of over and over again as i just said about the possibility what, what possibilities exist in a novel and and it is Captain Ahab from Moby. <laughs> oh my gosh, Dead. I would not have guessed that. So we could be. Wow. We, it could be a radio program from 1922. Right. We could be talking about right. That. Oh my gosh, uh, how many? You have read Moby Dick ten to twelve times. When I was oh in high school, gosh. I love to tell this story, and hopefully, my old English high school English teacher David Benkin is listening. I hope he is. But one of the at Minneapolis South High School, I might be quick to add, go Tigers. Uh, one of the assignments that I had is, a, and I was not a great high school student, uh, and, and it, I, I, I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Mr. Benkin for straightening me out. But one of the assignments he gave in advanced placement English in my senior year of high school was we could either read The Old Man in the Sea and write a 10-page paper, mm-hmm. or we could read Moby Dick and we could give an oral presentation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I chose Moby Dick. And I don't remember anything about the presentation that I gave, but this was right on uh, the year that I was becoming a reader and the year that I decided I wanted to be a writer and got serious about reading books. And I remember the experience of encountering Ahab for the first time as though I were on the Pequod (laughs) and as though I was a crew member of that ship. And I was terrified and I was thrilled. And I thought, who is this man? <laughs> who is this monomaniac who's going to drive his crew to madness and ruin? And I loved him. I positively loved him for that quality. He is constantly surprising. He is singularly focused. And he is the very definition of a madman. And he's so interesting for all of those reasons. Do you do you feel like in all of those read when when have you most recently returned to that novel? I think I most recently read Moby Dick. Well, twice. I I read Moby Dick to uh, my my youngest son when he was a baby when he would not sleep at night, and so I would walk around the house <laughs> Jeez, reading Moby Dick. Yeah. That, that's a fun story. <laughs> and, um, but but I've read it once since then, so probably ten years ago. Okay, so did in those in that decade of reading, were you? Do you feel like you were constantly discovering some new? dimension some new trait of this character i mean what is it that i i guess consistently inspires you about the way this this portrait is drawn of captain ahab it's one of the most remarkable things about ahab and about moby dick the book itself is that for as often as i've returned to it and as much as i've thought about it and again i would you know it's it's 
silly how often I have thought of Moby Dick and Captain Ahab over the years. But each time I return to it, whether through a reading or just in thinking about it, there is something new to learn. And I think this is what distinguishes the great books from the good or very mm-hmm. good books mm-hmm. is that quality of never being able to solve the riddle, whatever that mm-hmm. riddle is. And in Moby Dick, it is the whole world. It is life on earth. That is the the riddle at the core of that book. And Captain Ahab, who thinks that he can slay it, thinks that he can conquer it, which of course he cannot. He's doomed to failure. Spo- spoiler alert, things don't go well for Captain <laughs> Ahab or anyone else on the Pequod. All right. But but that it is that quality that I I'm, I, I find it magical. I think it's uh, amazing and mesmerizing. And though I'll never achieve that quality in my own work, it is the, the, the North Star to which I aspire. Here's a question I will ask all of our writers once I've heard who their literary characters are. If you walked into a bar and Captain Ahab was sitting there and you sat down next to him, What's the question? You get one question to ask Captain Ahab. What would it be? Oh, you should give us time to think about that one, (laughs) Carrie. The question is, why? Really? Why? Why have you made this? Why is vengeance the driving force in your soul? What made you this way what why happened? are you obsessed and be a long I, conversation i think peter i actually think he would quaff his drink <laughs> and put his cap on and walk out the door <laughs> and not deign to answer he, huh? he, he can't possibly know the answer which is one of the beautiful things about his character one last question for the end of 2022 what's the best novel you read this year and the one that you just feel like you have to put in the hands of dear friends and family. You know, I teach this novel writing course at the Loft Literary Center. It's a year long novel writing course. And this year we had a, a what is it? Uh, three, three, three former students publish their first books and they're all terrific books, oh, but the book that great. really, really um, inspired me this year is a book called the Barons by Kurt and Ellie Johnson. It's a father and daughter writing team. And it is one of the most beautiful, harrowing, slight novels that I've ever read, never mind this year. It's a beautiful love story. It's a beautiful adventure story. And people would do well to check it out. How in the heck did I miss this? A father-daughter writing team, too? That's pretty unusual. Yes. Yes, it's oh. it's it's a terrific story. I mean, the story of the book, and they're they're working on it together. Kurt is a terrific writer, and he did most of the writing. But it's a story of two uh, two gay women who go on a canoe trip in the Barrens, mm-hmm. and things don't go well. And he uh, and and the story is partly based on his daughter's experiences. No one died on her canoe trip, but she's she's the one who spent a lot of time paddling in the Barrens. And so he wanted to uh, include her and, uh, you know, and, and, and directly, I guess, capitalize 
on her experience for the purposes of telling his story and thought that she deserved credit in the venture. It's going to the top of my list for 2023, Peter. I'm glad you mentioned it. Thank you. Peter Guy's novel, published in 2022, is called The Ski Jumpers. Peter, thank you for playing along. It's been (laughs) great to do it with you. So much fun. Thanks, Carrie. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Carrie Miller. On this last Big Books and Bold Ideas show of the year, we're doing something a little different. Instead of asking writers about the books they wrote, we're asking three Minnesota writers about a favorite literary character someone else wrote. Is it a character that led a life our writer could imagine themselves living? Is it a character of such rich dimension and accomplished expression that our writer simply stands back in awe of what its creator did? Maybe it's a character who has made moral choices or confronted tragedy in a way that ends up being pretty important to our writer. Shannon Gibney is with us now. She's a writer and college professor. She's the author of, among other books, Dream Country. And she has a forthcoming memoir novelish book titled The Girl I Am, Was, and Never Will Be. She's in the studio. Welcome. Nice to see you again. Great to see you, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a long time. It has been, Good to be in the same studio together. Okay. I'm curious about whether when you got this assignment from us, two or three literary characters came immediately to mind, and then you kind of struggled to narrow it down? Or was this an instant, I know who this is? It was a really interesting assignment, you know, and as a teacher and a college professor, I don't often get assignments. <laughs> I know, I'm so proud of So I really actually appreciated it. I, I, I honestly had to think hard about it. I, there wasn't something that was like, oh, this definitely. Um, and um, so I, I went to, I ha- I'm very lucky. Um, I have a copious amount of, of book space. So I went to my bookcases uh-huh. and I started pulling things out and um, really thinking carefully about this. Um, as somebody who who loves stories and love bo- loves books, it's like, okay, I don't want to get this, this wrong. Um, and so I, I came up with, it is a character, but it's, um, you know, not surprising because it's me and I always have to, you know, do things a little different. Um, right. It's, it's uh, let's say, a, a non-traditional character. And that would be the traveling symphony of Emily St. John Mandel's gorgeous and just kind of mind-blowing novel, uh, Station Eleven. You mean the whole traveling symphony? The oh my traveling gosh, that's, symphony that's really genius. As an entity, because she actually does... She describes the members of the Traveling Symphony as individual people, definitely. But she also takes the time to describe them as a unit as well. And uh, and I and I do have a passage. Yeah, I'd love to remind us, refresh our memories here. So basically, Station Eleven is a post-apocalyptic novel. Uh, in it is, it might even be my favorite novel mm. of the pen, past ten years. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 it's me. So I started reading it as our pandemic started Uh um, because I thought that would be appropriate. And so many people, (laughs) because that's just the kind of mind I have. Um, But so many people had told me 
you know, being a sci-fi nerd and, you know, being a, a, a writer myself and a lover of words and characters and ideas, like you, you have to read this book. And um, so it took me a little while to get to it. But yeah, it's post-apocalyptic and there's been this pandemic that basically has wiped out 99% of humanity across the earth and like super fast. Um, and so it's sort of goes you go back and forward in time right. and um and this is sort of when we meet the traveling symphony it's like it's like 20 or 30 years out since the fall and so it's this group of <laughs> it's this group of shakespearean actors this group of musicians and kind of everyone in between traveling through michigan and um like the between they say between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Like the Upper Great Lakes. The Upper Great Lakes. And yeah, and I'm a Michigander. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so um, that whole sort of landscape is very familiar to me as well. Let me me add one thing to this. Because what what you said about the fact that it's 20 or 30 years out is important. Yes. They've got experience. Yes. They've bonded. They've had friction, whatever. I mean, these are people who know each other. Some people have come and gone, yes, right? But this is a landscape that they've traveled for a while yes. and they know well, and it's starting, I think, to seep into their own uh, beings, right? Yeah. And the way they express themselves. What yeah. else would you say about that? I mean, I just think, to me, that was like the kind of anchor of this novel. Right. And, uh, and I I didn't know that, though, until I got to the end of the novel, and, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, oh my God, this book, you know, you describe it to people and they're like, that's grim. And you're like, but it's not actually. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful it's joyful pieces. In some yeah, places. because it's, yeah. you know, basically she's asking the question in this book, in the end times, when everything else is gone, what's left? Mm-hmm. And the traveling symphony, I think, answers that question beautifully. And it's the art. The art is what's left. The community is what, as imperfect and messy and, um, you know, uh, unsafe, you know, because it is an unsafe, it's safer than it was. They say like the first like three to five years, it was like uh, the living dead. You know, like, I don't know if anybody. They were risking their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, but then, you know, people sort of got settled the the survivors, the 1% who survive, you know, got settled in these little settlements. So, Things are still obviously they haven't gone back to what they were before the fall. Um, but you know, these folks are, you know, they're traveling when we meet up with them, like in, you know, 105 degree summer heat, and they've got like a horse, and um, you know, because there's the gasoline is gone, right? right? And they're pulling the cart, and everybody's just walking, you know, and they go to these different settlements and do king. King Lear, I think everybody's practicing in this one scene. And um, and this is like the third rehearsal that they've done, like on the road. And people are just, you know, ornery with each other. Right. They're hot. They're whatever. <laughs> you know, also the scenes when they get to the settlements and sort of the interactions that they have with the people there, you know, with the performances and 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 with the art, too, is um, is really um, beautiful. And um I've heard people also describe this novel as a as an elegy almost to mm-hmm. modern day life because all these characters are like, you know, I, I remember what it was like to look at a TV screen, but I, I can't quite remember like the sound of like a car horn and I can't. 
And it just kind of gets you in this space of like all these things that we take for granted because we this is the world that we live in, this this digital post-industrial world. Um, and and the, the novel asks, well, what if, that, what if all that, of that was gone? And you really get to see that through through these characters. Um, we kind of had a taste of that during the pandemic. We right? did, actually. Yeah, like a little a little bit. But, you know, in, a, in another way, like our technology also enabled us to stay right. in contact with each other. Right. Um, in a way that they don't, oh, no. that they don't have. Uh, so let's say you're going to read a scene. Yes, I'm going to read scenes. just, it's actually not a scene, but it's just like a, a short a uh, little little section um, that I, I I revisited last okay. night when I was doing my, my prep work, my homework here. <laughs> Sounds great. The problem with the Traveling Symphony was the same problem suffered by every group of people everywhere since before the collapse, undoubtedly since well before the beginning of recorded history. Start, for example, with the third cello. He had been waging a war of attrition with Dieter for some months, following a careless remark Dieter had made about the perils of practicing an instrument in dangerous territory. The way the notes can carry for a mile on a clear day. Dieter hadn't noticed. Dieter did, however, harbor considerable resentment toward the second horn, because of something she'd once said about his acting. This resentment didn't go unnoticed. The second horn thought he was being petty, but when the second horn was thinking of people she didn't like very much, she ranked him well below the second, the seventh guitar. There weren't actually seven guitars in the symphony, but the guitarists had a tradition of not changing their numbers when another guitarist died or left, so that currently the symphony roster included guitars four, seven, and eight, with the location of the sixth presently in question because they were done rehearsing a Midsummer's Night's Dream in the Walmart parking lot. They were hanging the Midsummer Night's Dream's backdrop between the caravans. They'd been in St. Deborah by the water for hours now. And why hadn't he come to them? Anyway, the seventh guitar, whose eyesight was so bad that he couldn't do most of the routine tasks that had to be done, the repairs and hunting and such, which would have been fine if he'd found some other way to help out, but he hadn't. He was essentially dead weight as far as the second horn was concerned. The seventh guitar was a nervous person because he was nearly blind. He'd been able to see reasonably well with an extremely thick pair of glasses, but he'd lost these six years ago. And since then, he'd lived in a confusing landscape distilled to pure color according to season, summer mostly green, winter mostly gray and white, in which blurred figures swam into view and then receded before he could figure out who they were. I'll stop there. I could go on. <laughs> but, you know, she just, um, I just feel like, Emily St. John Mandel just has this way that I feel like the best novelists do of, um, you know, sort of going up and giving us this huge view of what's happening and then drilling down, you know, to the minutia of, you know, human experience and, 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 you know, in this part in, in um, the, the traveling symphony, like the irritations that human beings have had everywhere. Right? I mean, I just I laugh every time I read this because I'm just like, yeah, that would that's exactly how it is, how it's been and how it would be. You know, it, as you were describing that, I was thinking that that 30,000 foot view and then what she is so expert at and and the best novelists are, right, is bringing us into the intimacy of human connection, yeah. right? And human experience. Yeah. Just what you're saying, the little irritations. I mean, for God's sake, people, it's post-apocalyptic, <laughs> right? And you're still getting annoyed with each other over 
But that that resonates, right? That really rings true. Right, right, exactly. And just the you know the little things, like yeah, like I I wear glasses, right? What what would I do? I've lost them before. <laughs> right. Like it completely changes your um, engagement with the world around you and the people around you when you when you um, don't have these tools, you know, of modernity that that sort of. Uh, we've we've come to depend on for certain things, right? Um, and so, what would that look like? And um, and yeah, all of us harbor certain resentments, and and then you know we're we're all in families. We're all we all work with people. We all are in community. Even if you're a hermit, that's a way of interacting with people, right? And so it's sort of like, um, you know, what does that look like in this other context, right? So one of the questions that I'm asking writers as they think about these favorite literary characters is whether there is something about this character, or in this case, this group of characters, that that was so meaningful to you that it changed the way you saw the world around you, it gave you some dimension on who you are as a writer or the things that you're writing. Would Would that be the case? I think so. I mean, I've always believed that the purpose of art is to create space and connection where there wasn't that before. Um, And this was just another deeper example of that for me, Um, particularly because Again, this is why I love the form of the novel. It's like you can go on all these tangents and she does, right? And just like the traveling symphony goes to all these different places. And, you know, she's exploring, you know, before the fall, King Lear and 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 what's happening um, in the lives of the actors there and then. And then she's falling out. She's exploring after the fall, you know, and what's happening as the traveling symphony is performing King Lear in this con- in this context and between these characters and and even through all the human fallibility and all the disappointments, you know, because the the main actor um, for the King Lear production, uh, just it's actually it's before the fall, but it's as the world is is ending. Basically, they don't know right. it yet. Is very accomplished, and he's also like a complete mess, like emotionally, psychologically, and whatnot. And yet, you see that that his art is this grounding force for him, and this way for him to actually, I would say, get more intimate with the way things are really what it means to be a human being in the world. Mm. Um, And I see that also with the traveling symphony as well. And just sort of in a larger way, this novel, I don't know. I just felt so free reading it. I felt. What a great description. Free as in I could go anywhere. You could put anything that you want into your art Uh and you just have to find a way to make it fit and make it truthful. And she did that, you know, she, so this is a speculative novel. It's a post-apocalyptic novel, but that's not really what it is either. It's really just a novel about art and connection and, and, and people. And so I do feel like, you know, we were talking a little bit before, you know, my, my new book is I told you the weirdest thing I've ever written. Um, and, and yes, I do take pride in that. But 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 books like this sort of give you the courage to do that, right? Um, 
I haven't heard Emily St. John Mendel talk about Station Eleven. I know she has. But I, I didn't get the feeling reading it that she was like sitting down one day and was like, you know what, I'm going to write this book about this post-apocalyptic traveling symphony and this guy who deems himself a prophet and is trying to, you know, corrupt everyone around him. And this other woman who's uh, writing this kind of like amazing graphic novel about Station Eleven and this guy in this other galaxy um, and somehow weave all these things together. I just don't think she did that. I could be wrong. I, I think you are putting your finger on something that, as you were describing this, I was thinking about Sea of Tranquility, yeah. her other novel. Yeah, which I have not read yet. I, I This is this Station Eleven was so good that I'm like, I'm scared. Like, I don't. It's It's really, really great. Anyway, but I think you're going to find the same quality there, which is it doesn't feel forced, even though it's this huge canvas and she's throwing all this stuff into it. Again, she starts with this kernel of human connection. And what if we could time travel? But it all comes back to this really intimate idea about who we are together. And it never feels forced. It's a... I don't know. Okay, well, that that I might just save for my um, holiday <laughs> gotcha. reading. All right, because good. I, you've you've inspired me because I I was talking actually with my aunt because both of us just adored Station Eleven and we're like we don't know if we can read anything else of hers because uh-huh. how could it possibly measure up? <laughs> um, and so now you've given me the confidence to good go to Sea of Tranquility wholeheartedly. All right, so I appreciate that. So since this show is airing at the end of the year. I am curious about the novel that spoke most deeply to you in 2022. It doesn't have to be the best novel you read this year, but the one that made some kind of indelible fingerprint on on you. Yeah, um, I, I have to say uh, it's Kelly Barnhill's new new novel. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I it's. She's a friend, so I feel a little weird saying that, you know, like, but but it's just the truth. Um, the Beatrice Prophecy? No. Um, oh, the new when women were dragons. Oh, got it. Okay. And um, I just feel like um, all the different pieces that she put in there, you know, from the um, the sort of narratives of these women turning into dragons um, at different points in history um, and but then focusing on the 1950s mostly and then you know the sort of <laughs> quote-unquote redacted government um, documents studying these uh, dragonings and 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 sort of putting that next to um, those texts and just the the sort of like you know it is a celebration of the feminine divine in a way that I I haven't I haven't encountered before like that. Um, And I just thought it was really, again, I just like stuff that just, I feel free as I'm reading it. I feel like, wow, so much is possible in this genre of of, uh, uh, novel writing. And so much is possible in this this human life, you know, in this mortal coil, as they say. Um, And so, um, and again, you know, just like Station Eleven, there's also these speculative elements too, which is just something that I've been embracing more in my own work too. That, you know, sometimes I can just feel very 
the older I get, the more I feel trapped by just having to write about um, sort of modern day contemporary American life as it is. Like, I can do that. That's fine. But there's things that I want to say, questions that I want to to ask in my own work that I can't do if I just stay in that realm. I, I actually need to go to these other speculative realms. And so things that I read that that do that just make just they just inspire me. Um, yeah. Shannon, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great topic. What a fun assignment. Yeah. I love assigning something to a college professor. <laughs> I didn't even think was, about that. It, but. Was, it, was, it was excellent. Thank you. Shannon Gibney is a writer and professor. She's the author of, among other books, Dream Country. And you'll be hearing an interview coming <laughs> with her forthcoming memoir, novel, whatever, interesting book. <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Called The Girl I Am, Was, and Never Will Be. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to our end-of-the-year episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas. I've asked three Minnesota writers to tell me about their favorite characters from literature, and I've got to tell you, the answers have been quite intriguing and unexpected. Turning now to Ben Percy, he's a novelist and screenwriter. His novels include The Unfamiliar Garden, it's part of the Comet Cycle, and a collection of stories titled Suicide Woods, and he writes for Marvel Comics. Ben, long time, no chat. It's really good to talk to you again. How have you been? I've been all right. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always good to get on the radio with you. I know. I'd love to talk to you, too. Did two or three favorite characters come immediately to mind and then you had to narrow it down? Or or was this an assignment where you were like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to talk about, who I'm going to talk no, about? No, it was a tricky one. I you know, cycled through several different options, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge popped into mind right away, (laughs) in part because it's the holiday season. But, you know, I ultimately decided on a book and a character that have been especially important to me and my family, uh, because I've uh, read aloud the novel twice uh, to my kids. Wow. And it stands out as, you know, just a singular voice uh, and a great American novel to me. Before you tell me what the novel is and who the character is, I'm curious about whether it was just a given that this character would be a man, or did you actually consider a character who's been meaningful who was a woman, or somewhere in between? Uh, I gave no thought to gender. Mm-hmm. I I thought only about, you know, who has affected me most. Uh, It turned out to be uh, that this narrator is a woman uh, looking back on her childhood. Um, And there is, you know, there's there's a few different things that I'm looking for when when I think about a first-person narrator in particular, and one of them is voice. And this voice feels... um, you know, just so deeply American and hard bitten and, uh, you know, lyrical, but in a gritty sort of manner. And there's a profundity to the insights offered. And there's also um, just this, uh, 
focus, a, a kind of mania uh, to the drive of the character that yanks the story forward along with um, just that, that colorful way she has of speaking. We're letting the suspense build, can you tell? um is this character someone that you feel changed by in some ways is it someone whose voice allowed you to see things in the world around you that you know with a with a dimension that you might not have had if you hadn't been exposed to this character what's the character meant to you uh in the way the character is mythic in that this story is a Western and a classic Western. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's something that is beyond, uh, you know, the everyday experience in it. It's, it's hyper colorful and, and uh, you know, stands out as, as mythic in many ways, but then there's also something especially grounded about it. And the fact that this character who has, so much working against her is able to endure, is able to survive, uh, is able to tell this story from the vantage of old age. Uh, it, you know, there's an aspirational quality to that. It makes you as a reader think that you too can make it through the gauntlet of life uh, and be better for all the punishment that our existence can throw at us. Wow. Okay. I'm trying to guess in my head and I've come up with a couple but I've kind of thrown them aside because they don't match everything you've described. Did you were you introduced to this character as a child? No, I was not except as a character in a film. Uh, mm. the film adaptation I did watch. Uh, but the but the novel I didn't read until I was in college. And then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And if you look at the pages, they appear tangled in barbed wire because I've taken so many notes, uh, notes that span decades. Um, And some of these notes are me taking apart sentences, and some of these notes are me taking apart scenes, and some of these notes are just me saying things like, ha, (laughs) (laughs) in the margins, uh, because I'm so taken. Um, by the humor of the story, even as it's, you know, completely thrilling. There's also a lot of humor. And the humor is, uh, in many cases, unknown uh, to the narrator. Uh-huh. I, and I love, I love that kind of uh, dramatic irony, where this person is in many ways humorless, and that's what makes them funny. Okay, the only novel that comes to mind is... Charles Portis's True Grit, but I don't think that's what this is. Is it? That's what this no is. No way! Ding, 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 oh ding, my ding. gosh! Oh man, <laughs> and, Ben, uh, what an amazing is choice! Ross. Yes. Oh wow! I love that novel. I just love it. So it's uh, as I say, I think it's one of the great American novels. Oh man, me too. Okay, so you saw the movie then first and right and and so what was the experience then of of reading the novel after having you know a very a wonderful uh adaptation Indeed. you know in your head yeah uh i think that there's a double vision that occurs uh but the novel take took over 
um, you know, the movie in a way is more a vehicle for John Wayne. Mm, right. And so when you read the book, you're just immersed in, you know, this first person experience. And Rooster Cogburn is important to Maddie's journey, but it's not about him. Uh, it's about her. And it's about the core wound that she's suffering. That's a term I talk about a lot when I'm teaching at a writer's conference or visiting a college classroom, this core wound. Um, you know, in screenwriting, they refer to it as a key insight, but it's, you know, the sort of the thing, the vacancy, uh, the monkey on the back of the character that they're trying to overcome through this narrative journey. Um, and so in her case, it's the death of her father. And Rooster Cogburn, who again, you know, is in a way the headliner of the film, you know, in the, in the book, he is filling that vacancy for Maddie. Mm. Um, her father right. has been killed and Rooster eventually and begrudgingly takes on the role of a surrogate father. And so that's what this journey is really all about. I, what you said about the humor that exists in the novel, but that Maddie often doesn't realize, or or I guess she's kind of letting it loose into the narrative, but she's not really participating in a lot of ways. And it is right. really she's true. She's so serious. So right. serious. And the way that she, you know, stubbornly marches into this frontier town and completely takes control of it, <laughs> bossing people around and, you know, scamming in some ways. Right. Uh, the owner of the mercantile or the owner of, uh, you know, a, a batch of ponies, like the way that she's always, um, you know, essentially playing math games with them, <laughs> saying, you know, but, so that by the end of a conversation, the end of an encounter, they might be sort of penniless in a way. And she's gotten away with, you know, uh, six ponies that were owed to her along with, you know, the price of the lost saddles and, 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 and these people are just sort of bewildered looking around, looking around, not sure what to do about this force of nature uh, that has appeared in front of them. She's only 14 years old. Right? I know she, it's, it's, she's like a general. I mean, and so, this is the other thing too. She is a believable teenager. You know, I, She's not too imbued with adult qualities that I don't believe in her teenagehood. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a vulnerability to her that right. comes out now and then, despite her the shields that she puts up. You know, right. she'll she'll be knocked aside, she'll get sick, she'll you know have these moments of calamity where she relies on others to help her, um, and that. You know, that child-like quality that she tries to just shove down and tries not to show the world, um, you know, it's it's what makes her, makes me sort of like lean in with empathy. Mm. Um, she's gone through this, this, you know, wounded situation and she's trying to sort of scar up her heart and scar up her voice and and her manner uh, so that the world will take her seriously and, and, and she can, you know, find justice. Um, but she's just a kid. She's just a kid, man. I mean, for me, I love her the way I love Jane Eyre for some of sure. the reasons that you've just articulated. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering if I could actually read oh my you know, gosh. the opening well, paragraph yes, just to please do. give you a sense of 
the voice, if you can imagine, um, you know, my family, we're in the car, we're driving to Yellowstone and, and I read this all the way there this past summer. <laughs> Love it. Please do. People do not give it credence that a 14 year old girl could leave home and go off in the winter time to avenge her father's blood. But it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money plus two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. Here is how it happened. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, for you... Who is the best Maddie? Is it Kim Darby or is it Haley Steinfeld? You know, I'm a big Coen Brothers fan, so I I kind of fell in love with the remake. Um, Me too. But, you know, that first impression, um, the, the, the original film still, still lingers in the back of my mind. I, I love them both, really. I mean, I felt like... Haley played it with less, um, more knowing and less naivete, which, which resonated with me. What's, what's your assessment yeah, of the yeah. two yeah, different performances? Yeah, there's a little bit of rascally, uh, right. fervor to the, to the original role. Um, didn't feel quite as grounded. As Haley, Haley's steely resolve really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. She has, as they say, true grit. <laughs> she, uh, if you walked into a saloon and you saw Maddie sitting there on one of the this bar stools, what do you think you'd talk about? Uh, well, I don't think she'd suffer any fools. So I'd have to, uh, you know, talk about something related to accounting or the Bible or, or survival in the frontier wilderness, or, or she'd probably just brush me aside and consider me, you know, uh, uh an ignorant clown. Um, <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> now, but then one again, of, one of my, one of my favorite moments in the novel, you know, comes towards the end. Um, when just thing after thing after thing goes wrong. Um, you know, you have Rooster, you have Labeef, you have this gang of outlaws mm -hmm. that they're after, all because she wants what she states right at the beginning of this novel. She wants that $150 in cash money and those two California gold pieces, and she wants justice. <laughs> you know, she has, she has this mania to her, as I was mentioning before. And um, Grey Wolf Press, which is based out of Minnesota. Gray Wolf Press has this great collection of craft books called the Art of series. One of these books is called The Art of Subtext, written by Charles Baxter. Hmm. And in it, he talks about mania. He talks about how interesting characters who are maniacs are, who have this obsessive focus that drives them. Characters like Gatsby or characters like Ahab, right? And, and what they want is usually like an, you know, something physical, like uh, what Gatsby wants is um, Daisy, right? right? But what he really wants is to be accepted by the blue blood crowd. I um, mean, in that same way, like Maddie is so singularly focused on wanting these California 
gold pieces and this $150 and this guy's head, essentially. You know, she wants it wrapped, his neck wrapped in a noose. <laughs> so for, for killing her father. But, you know, as she goes on this journey, it becomes, you know, what she really wants is her father back, right? And, 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 and Rooster steps into that position and they form a kind of broken family. And there's that moment towards the end that just breaks my heart when, you know, she and Rooster are after these characters and they've somewhat succeeded, but in the end she ends up, you know, sort of falling back into this pit of rattlesnakes. Right. And, uh, you know, Rooster Cogburn has to charge this whole group of people, um, this group of outlaws with his guns blazing, sort of living up to his earlier reputation. Uh, you know, he's sort of a fallen man, but he very bravely takes on this crowd of outlaws. And then he has to, you know, fish her out. And, and she's been, her bones are broken and, and she's been bitten all over by these rattlesnakes. She's soaked with venom and he just rides that pony all the way, you know, for probably over a hundred miles oh, until the pony scene. falls. And then he, and then oh. he walks her the rest of the way, uh, you know, risking everything for her. And, and she's cradled in his arms, you know, like a child in that moment. And, and that just gets me every time. Same you know, here. You know, when I read it aloud to the kids, you know, I, was, I, I might have been brushing a few tears out of my beard. <laughs> How old are your kids? Uh, I've got a 13-year-old girl whose name is Madeline, huh? uh, Maddie. <laughs> and I have a 16-year-old boy named Connor. And... Did they, do you think they saw in the novel with your reading what has been so special for you? I think so. Um, Maddie was especially into it, um, you know, because <laughs> there was her namesake in part. Um, and, and, and my son, you know, he's, he's 16 years old, so he's, he's, Usually too cool for me, but he too was engaged. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I do everything I can to to pull out the theatrics when I'm reading aloud to the family. So you know, I've got my voice for Rooster Cogburn. <laughs> <laughs> my, my voice for the beef as well. Well, you know, it's very good. It becomes, uh, you know, at least at least amusing, if not uh, emotionally affecting. Okay, question that I've asked. Uh, the other writers that I'm talking to, I'm curious about the novel that you read in 2022 that, I don't know, gave you a different view of the world that spoke to you in a way that your other reading didn't quite, what would you yeah, say? that's a great question. Uh, I will mention two books. Um, the first is called Driftless. And it was written by David Rhodes. Oh my gosh! Um, published I love, by Milkweed Press. Love that. That's been out for a while. Yeah. Did you just find? It's been it? out for some time, and it's yeah. been sitting on my night table and oh, collecting dust. So good. And I finally broke it open, and there's a patience to it that I really appreciated. Uh, it's an ensemble piece, and it reminds me a bit of the writing of Kent Harris and the way that it examines a community. Mm -hmm. And the sort of slow movement of families and the interrelationships of small town Midwest America, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it sort of helped 
I guess, cure me of some of the cynicism that can come when I'm reading all of these alarming headlines. It, it helped me trust in people again. It's a really beautiful story. So I, I highly recommend that. And the other book that um, swept me away was the first 15 lives of Harry August hmm. written by Claire North. Hmm. And there's kind of an age old sci-fi premise to it. If you think about, you know, the groundhog day scenario, mm -hmm. um, every time that this character lives and dies, they come back with the memories of the last lifetime, but they're not being reborn and reborn and reborn on the same day, like groundhog day. Instead, they're living an entire life, right? So they might die at 91. They might die at, um, you know, 13, but, but they, they are continuously born on this, this, uh, Harry is continuously born on this train platform. Um, his mother gives birth and, and then, you know, he goes forward and goes forward again. And, and what he eventually comes to realize is, is that he is not alone. There are others who are experiencing the same phenomenon, but not at the same moment, like throughout all of time. Hmm. And so they are known as the Kronos Club. So sometimes maybe there'll be a 91-year-old person in their hospital bed. They're about to die, and all of a sudden a four-year-old child walks in and starts to talk to them. And that four-year-old child knows what happens 100 years from now because they've lived it. And so they can sort of communicate with each other across the ages in this way. And what they come to understand is that the world is ending sooner and sooner and sooner. And there might be a member of the Kronos Club who is responsible for this. So one of the reasons that I love the story was just that, you know, during the pandemic, we all had to sort of reassess our lives, mm -hmm. reassess value, mm -hmm. and think about, you know, a calamitous future. Um, and so there was a kind of replication that I felt in this novel uh, that brought up questions about, you know, well, what if I could come back? Would I do it the same way? Or moving forward, you know, if I knew that we were coming towards an end, uh, how would I change things? So it brought up a lot of existential questions for me that were felt particularly relevant given the state of the world. Ben Percy is a novelist and screenwriter. His novels include The Unfamiliar Garden, which is part of the Comet Cycle, and he writes for Marvel Comics, and he's working on a remake television series of Urban Cowboy. Ben, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on.